the research targets of the pharmacy industry are mostly dominated by how much profit can we make, not how much health can we provide. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, it's healthcare uh, in the news everywhere, and it's healthcare on the podcast. We're talking about terms that are often confusing and we hear them all the time, and I think people assume that you know what they mean, but I think it's good to spend a little time thinking about these terms and how they apply to people's lives. Uh, you may turn on the news and hear uh, an interview or hear a news story that talks about co-payments, for example, and that's the one I want to talk about. What is a copay? You know, it's funny. This is a term everybody, I think, expects you to know, but I think people misunderstand it. Um, there really are two different areas that I want to talk about. One is the copay that I talked about last time, and I'll just uh, gloss that over quickly, where in your insurance policy, uh, you may have a component to it that's listed as a copay, and that's the flat dollar amount that you pay if you go see the doctor when you're sick. And it really doesn't really apply toward your deductible or your coinsurance. It truly is an out-of-pocket expense. We talked about out-of-pocket expenses last time. But it's just a flat rate that you pay when you go see the doctor for a regular doctor visit when you're not feeling well. After you're diagnosed, any procedures that you need after that will be involved in your deductibles and coinsurance after that. But that's a separate issue from your copay in that realm. But there's another realm of copays that has to do with prescription drugs. What can you say about that? That's one that affects me the most. Because I do carry extra insurance beyond Medicare, um, I don't usually get hit with coinsurance, the insurance I have is my coinsurance. Mm -hmm. um, but copays on drugs can be very confusing. Um, copays are fixed amounts, so they're not percentages. Coinsurance would say 50% of the cost of a dental operation, like I mentioned before. But the copays we were talking about, you talked about a fixed dollar amount for a doctor visit. That also can apply to medicines, but those are calculated differently depending on the prescription. First of all, there are non-prescription medicines, which your doctor may say, you got to buy this, but I'm not going to write a prescription because it's an over-the-counter prescription. You don't need a prescription for it. Usually, your insurance will refuse to pay for that. Sometimes, however, those can be deductible on your income taxes, interestingly enough. But drug companies have played all kinds of games with trying to maximize their income without raising the prices so high to the patient that they just decide, I can't afford to buy it. Now, in some cases, and there have been a lot of really well-publicized cases recently, um, this has been quite an outrageous practice. But sometimes they play more complicated games than just raising the price tremendously. Some of these drugs that are still under patent 
have very, very high prices, but then they will give away coupons to doctors, uh, well, to pharmacies usually, or you can get them by mail sometimes. And the coupon will make the medicine very cheap or almost free for the patient. And this sounds like they're being very generous. What they're really doing is jacking the price way up and making the insurance company pay full freight. Uh, and so you, as the patient, get the delusion that it's inexpensive. You don't really usually get to hear what the insurance company actually paid on my receipts, for instance. It shows what the drug company says is their price, but that's not necessarily what the insurance company paid either, nor is it necessarily what the pharmacy paid. All of that is very obscured. So these coupons seem like a really good deal, but they're a way of milking the system so that they can charge these exorbitant amounts and take the money from all kinds of sources, all of which you ultimately pay for in one way or another in that your insurance costs more because they're having to pay more for your stuff. The drug costs go up in the pharmacy also because they're more expensive and the pharmacist winds up having to cover more expense. So it's really a sleazy business. It can be a lifesaver. It's something you really need, but it's something I'd rather see wiped out and replaced by a more sensible system we might talk about later. Sure. And this was the argument that was being made in the case of uh, Martin Shkreli. Is that his name? Yeah, Shkreli. Now in jail, I believe, for unrelated. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. So uh, he was jacking up the price of a prescription drug. He bought the rights to the prescription drug, jacked up the price immediately to some exorbitant amount and then tried to claim, well, don't worry, people don't actually pay that because insurance companies pay for that. Well, nobody should ever hear that argument for half a second. I mean, just instantly, uh, even almost even making that claim should qualify him for being locked up forever. <laughs> That's just such a blatant, misleading and uh, really egregious lie. Well, it really is. For instance, they could say, okay, the list price of this drug is $1,000 a pill, but we're only going to charge you, the insurance company, $500 a pill. So you're getting a bargain. Well, all along, what they wanted was $500 a pill. They just inflate the official price to a level that would allow them after the discount to make all the money that they expect they can wring out of it. Sure. So it's just a game that they play. It's not a real discount at all. No, it's not. That's not a discount. And the concept that no matter how high they inflate it, don't worry about it, you people that need this drug, you're not actually having to pay for it. Your insurance company is paying for it. But who pays for the insurance? <laughs> right. We all do. So it's, you know. Either through taxes or through premiums. Uh, correct. So that's a entirely bogus argument. Don't listen for one second to anybody trying to make a claim such as that. Now, this coupon deal, some doctors pass them out and they say, well, I got this bunch of coupons in this company. So good you came to see me because you can get these coupons and then you say well i'm over 65 and i'm on medicare they say oh these coupons aren't good for people on medicare oh i see or some other law actually forbids medicare in addition from negotiating better prices with the drug companies so not only can medicare patients not use these coupons medicare is forbidden by law 
from negotiating with the drug companies to get a discount for any other kind of insurance. It's done routinely. So an insurance company say, okay, we know you're, you're telling everybody this pill is a thousand dollars a piece. Uh, we're not going to pay more than 250. Medicare can't do that. And so Medicare will sometimes limit you on things that they think uh, should be paid for. But it also winds up making Medicare very expensive. It has to pay a lot more for a lot of procedures and medicines than other companies. And why is this the law? Because the medical industry, particularly big pharmaceutical companies, have been enormous lobbyers paying vast sums for the campaign funds of our national legislators and got them firmly in their pockets. And so anything that threatens the profits of the medical industry and particularly uh, big pharma, as it's called, tends to get the vote tends to go the way they want. And uh, this is one of the most outrageous examples, I think, of the idea that the government can't do anything to really lower the cost of drugs effectively. And there was some hope during the campaign when Donald Trump made some noises about maybe doing something about this and trying to get drug prices down. I haven't seen much action on that front at all. Right. Over and over again, I'm finding out that things that Donald Trump said on his campaign that I actually liked and agreed with and thought made some sense. Uh, Push comes to shove. You know, I'm sorry to just be slandering the Republican Party so badly in this episode, but he just gets thrown in with the rest of the Republicans uh, arguing for the same old things that the pharmaceutical lobby is going to be pushing for. Funny how that works. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that the pharmaceutical types keep saying is that, well, we need to charge these high prices because it costs so much to test a drug and bring it to market. Mm-hmm. And yes, there's a little truth in that. There's a whole lot of lie. One of them is that a lot of these drugs that are so expensive were things that are like Shkreli's, where um, they've got a monopoly on it. They didn't develop the drug. They didn't spend the money developing it. They just bought it. And they're trying to make a lot of money on it. And so they're not developing any. There are lots of these companies that do not develop any drugs whatsoever. They're like the patent trolls that we see in other parts of the economy, especially in technical fields in the Internet. We've mentioned them before. But there are patent trolls in the medical industry, in pharmaceuticals. And um, these people shield themselves under that same ridiculous argument that, well, this is all going to your benefit because we're doing all this research. It's notorious that if a medicine is not going to make a big profit, it doesn't get researched. And there are many medical problems where people suffer who are typically too poor to buy a lot of medicine. And so it's not worth researching it. Or um, the remedies we have are not striking enough to make a big demand for the medicine, even though it might be very useful. The Gates Foundation has done a nice job of going in and doing some of this kind of research, and there are some other charitable institutions that have done it as well. But the research targets of the pharmacy industry are mostly dominated by how much profit can we make, not how much health can we provide. Besides that, in most of the regular pharmaceutical companies who aren't these trolls, they spend more on marketing than they do on research. 
And a lot of that is things like inviting a doctor to come to a golf club in Hawaii and read a short paper on how good their particular drug is. Um, there are journals that are run just for the purpose of saying, okay, you write us an article, we'll pay you X thousand dollars to publish this article, and then you can cite it. You're a published author in our journal. It's all kinds of scams like that. And all that money that's coming out is coming out of the pocket of the people who are paying for the insurance in the first place, the patients. And of course, when you look at the studies of the economy, people keep saying, well, one of the best places to invest is healthcare, hospitals, and pharmaceuticals. Why? Because they have huge profit margins. So you have all three of these factors playing in that just inflate the cost of drugs tremendously. And one of my pet peeves that I've gotten hit by more than once is that uh, drugs which are under patent can charge more money because the company has a monopoly for a certain number of years on uh, manufacturing it and there's no competition. But as the date approaches for the expiration of the patent, Drug companies will routinely raise the price tremendously, sometimes two or three, four more times. So in the last year or year and a half, they can squeeze out a last little bit of profit from this drug that they may have developed long before, decades ago, and which they have long since recovered all the expense in, which costs very little to manufacture, and yet they're gouging one last time. And to add insult to injury, just as it becomes legal for independent companies to make a generic version of the drug, they will often pay the generic company to say either if you will agree not to manufacture generic for the next few years, we will give you X amount of money and it'll cover most of what you would have made in profits if you made a generic, but we can keep charging the same high price if you guarantee to keep charging a similar high price. Mm-hmm. To me, this seems like restraint of trade to an outrageous degree that ought to be illegal. Yes. But it's more or less routine. And often the generic companies will look at a drug and say, well, there are other drugs that are just as well as a generic drug. Um, we can't really make enough of a profit on it. So why not just take the money from Big Pharma and go ahead and make our money that way? These are games that the public is largely unaware of. But it's very interesting to watch one drug that I had, which was uh, fairly pricey. I think it was something like uh, $80 a month. And it went up to 300 all of a sudden. And then those dive down to about 10. Yeah. That's what was happening. That's crazy. That shouldn't be happening. Right. And one way that people could feasibly get around this is by going online and purchasing drugs that are produced in Canada, where they have a regulated system for prescription drugs, and costs can be quite a bit lower than they are here in the U.S. But for some reason, our national legislators cannot get anything through that would allow consumers to buy their drugs from Canada. Their argument is always that, you know, the FDA tests all ours and we know that they're safe and healthy and so on. There is no evidence that Canadian drugs are more dangerous to humans. I mean, there's a lot of people who go to Tijuana to get their prescriptions. There, you might be in a more iffy situation. Toronto, I think not. 
<laughs> no, no. This, of course, is strictly pressure from the pharmaceutical industry, lobbying from the pharmaceutical industry to never pass a law that would allow a regular consumer sitting in um, Des Moines, Iowa, uh, far from the Canadian border, <laughs> difficult to make a medical tourist visit to Canada to go fill some prescription drugs, just to make it illegal for them to purchase their drugs at a lower price. Yeah, as the current system has often been pointed out, in the U.S., we pay more for health care than any other developed nation. And we have worse health care, for the most part, than the other developed nations. We get less for our money. And the reason for that is this emphasis on private profit regulating everything and politicians going along with that ideal. And the pressure against the ACA is all in the direction of increasing the marketplace influence and decreasing government regulation. Government regulation is the only way to get prices down. For instance, in most countries, it is illegal for a pharmaceutical company to advertise its products. You can't have TV ads during the evening news telling you about how to fix your constipation or whatever. Uh, that's just not allowed. And that saves a huge amount of money and all these things that are done for doctors. You know, I went to an optometrist with a sty in my eye and he had this little bottle of antibiotic eye drop that he recommended. So he said, well, why don't you take this? This will be good for a couple of days. You can get a prescription and fill that. Well, the prescription was for about $200 for a teeny little bottle of eye drops. And I went back and told him and he was astonished. He had no idea. And I think that's routine. Doctors being given these free samples are given all sorts of biased information about what's best. And very frequently, they aren't aware of alternatives. Uh, they sometimes don't even know the generic name of the drug they're prescribing. They only know the brand name. And because they have these free samples, they think they're doing a good thing getting you started on it. And then you get this shock when you go to the pharmacy. Right, right. This reminds me of my own experience as a teacher where we used to be visited by textbook sellers and they would, you know, tout how wonderful their books were and they'd give you a sample copy and nowhere on that copy would you see a price tag. Right. They did not want you to know that your students were going to be paying through the teeth and that you, you could have saved them sometimes hundreds of dollars if you knew about an alternative. Well, we are a textbook publisher by our primary trade, and we do not put our prices on our books. However, at Franklin Beadland Associates, we pride ourselves in having the lowest cover prices on the market. So, <laughs> yeah, I love your pricing. <laughs> You've also traditionally not done the 99-cent suffix thing, too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as fun as that is, it's actually another commonly misunderstood thing maybe that uh, that's just deception to make you think of the lower dollar amount than the higher yeah 15.99 is not 15 no it's 16 yeah <laughs> so uh let's talk about some other medicare related terms you're talking about prescription drugs and how medicare is, covers those so what about supplemental health insurance and what we call the medigap those two things 
Well, supplemental health insurance uh, is pretty much what it says it is. And um, even at any age, you could have supplemental health insurance if you had, say, an, an employer policy that uh, was pretty narrow and didn't cover a lot of things. You could buy some extra coverage from another insurer or from the same insurer to cover some other things. But it especially comes up for Medicare people. That's what uh, my wife and I have. So we're covered with Medicare for a lot of things, but we have supplemental care insurance that covers a great deal else. For instance, the Medicare doesn't cover dental and our supplemental insurance does. And um, Medicare added Part D to cover drugs during the Bush administration, but we inherited from our employer paid insurance much better drug coverage. So we opted to keep that as we retired under COBRA, which stands for the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1985. And it uh, allows you to take over paying for the insurance that you had from your employer. Um, we have actually been able then to make the transition all the way, turning that into a supplemental insurance plan. We were state employees. It was a state paid plan. Um, and so I don't know how often that's an option, but it certainly has been a very good option for us. It's pretty pricey, but it also covers a great deal. A lot of physical therapy and dental, uh, hearing, uh, visual stuff, as I said, and uh, other things that uh, Medicare just won't chip in on. So we're always being asked when we sign up with a doctor about our coverage, whether we have Plan D, and we have to tell them, no, we don't. Plan D has some limits to it that are a problem. And supplemental health insurance uh, sometimes is called a rider on your insurance. It's not always available to you. I think it's not always available to you, or maybe it is, but most people are not concerned with it because many people receive health insurance from their job. So they have a full-time job. Uh, health insurance is part of the benefit. Um, for these people, I think they look at it the way of, well, I already have my health insurance. I shouldn't have to pay for health insurance. And I think there's somewhat of a misunderstanding or just taking things for granted there where uh, people don't realize that if they did not receive health insurance through their job, they would have to actually go out and buy health insurance, assuming that they don't want to go broke on medical costs should some calamity hit them. I think they don't understand that just what a tremendous benefit that is having that health insurance. Some people look at it the other way, though, as, uh, uh, well, if, if my employer wasn't paying for health insurance, I could just make more money. I'd have more money in my paycheck. You know, my employer wouldn't have to pay for the health insurance and I would just get more money on my own. But it's a way for the whole system to prevent people from ruining themselves and destroying their lives if some calamity hits them and they have to go declare personal bankruptcy from health care expenses. Well, one problem that there's been with that system in recent years is a number of employees opting out of some of the benefits so that they will not buy insurance, for instance, for your dependents, mm. just for the employee. Um, one of the things that we hear proposed in Congress frequently is that uh, this is a terrible burden on businesses and to stimulate businesses and help the economy and everything. Uh, we need to relieve these employers of this terrible burden of having to pay into this insurance business. 
And that's a huge danger. Um, part of the Affordable Care Act, of course, was to help pay some supplements to employers so that if they were small employers who couldn't afford as much in the way of insurance as the larger ones, that they could get some supplemental aid. And that's something that gets complained about, too. Well, we are a very small publisher here, a very small company. And in our case, uh, we had a year there where we decided to pull back on our health insurance benefit entirely and not pay it out because we could go out and buy through the Affordable Care Act better insurance and more coverage at a much lower price than insurance brokers were quoting us as a company to provide it to our employees. So what did we do? We raised our salaries and um, we tracked our employees to make sure that they actually were actually buying the health insurance with the extra money that they were getting out of their paycheck. And everybody actually came out a little bit ahead. You got a little bit extra salary to cover that health insurance, plus a little bit more on top of that, and you got better coverage. Well, the next year came around, uh, ACA prices went up tremendously here in the state of Oregon and the city of Portland. Um, but I went back to our insurance broker and I asked them, well, you know, what's the state of insurance premiums now? And it turned out that I could reverse the whole situation, pull back the salary increase, dump that money back into insurance, covering health insurance through the brokerage. And uh, it turns out to be a better deal going the other way, too. So I think that the Affordable Care Act, even if you are an employer who always has provided health insurance, people don't realize it is bringing down health care costs everywhere, not just uh, for people having to go out and buy individual insurance, but for employees that are providing it as well. Um, now, the news story that's uh, just hitting the news cycle as we record this is that Donald Trump is having a direct influence on the premiums that we can expect to pay for the year 2018. So this is going to be another round of increased premiums, very high increase in premiums that we can expect uh, for all of us. I guess, Paul, you're on Medicare. You're not, you're not going to have too much concern in that regard. Well, but our supplementary policy is quite expensive. Yeah. And the premiums have gone up a good deal. Yeah, right. So when the supplemental health insurance payment increases, that's a very huge burden, too. But a lot of people need that supplemental health insurance to cover some of these basics, like you said, the dental and vision care. Um, now, we should mention Medigap, just as a side note, that's a kind of a supplemental health insurance for Medicaid uh, Medicaid, we mentioned before, is for very low income people that cannot get insurance any other way. Uh, it is an insurance program that is provided in most states, I think. Most states, is that right? It was in all states. The expansion was not except by all states, but yeah, all 50 states. It's not required of all states, but all states have done it. Mm -hmm. But we'll talk about Medicaid a bit later. But yeah, Medigap. Sounds like it might mean any kind of gap filling insurance, but it specifically refers to extra insurance for people on Medicaid. So if, if you're not on Medicaid and you want to sound smart, it's supplemental health insurance, not your Medigap. Right. Uh, now, covered services versus excluded services. This uh, comes into play on our health care coverage. And 
You mentioned a little bit about excluded services, your vision and your dental out of Medicare. Another one is hearing. Medicare doesn't cover hearing exams. You'd think with older people that would be pretty routine. And hearing aids can be fabulously expensive. They're ridiculously so, in my opinion. Thousands and thousands of dollars for a little device that probably costs less than $10 to manufacture. And uh, in the past, there has been a legal requirement that, uh, I don't know if it's a legal requirement, or I think it was just a trade agreement that uh, the manufacturers of hearing aids would sell only through licensed audiologists who operated their own clinics um, or who worked in a clinic. And uh, that kept them out of stores. You can't go to a drugstore and buy a really good hearing aid. Uh, that was broken recently by Costco, which has set up their own hearing departments with licensed audiologists and slashed the prices more than half. And I actually wrote a letter about this to the AARP magazine and they published it and they hadn't heard the news, but uh, it had some influence. So uh, that's something for people who are beginning to have trouble with hearing to be aware of. There is competition now in that market, but our insurance actually pays a certain amount not the whole amount, but it pays a certain amount toward hearing aids. And that's just extremely valuable. Yes, right. Well, uh, let's wrap up this part of our conversation uh, with a little donut for dessert. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, now, we have covered services and excluded services, and that's pretty straightforward. But within these covered services in Medicare, uh, we have another term that's directly related to this, which is the donut hole. Right. You know, it's a funny term that cropped up, I guess, during the Bush administration. Is that right? Yes. It was the one that initiated the uh, Part D because Medicare didn't pay for prescriptions originally. And that was going to be a bigger and bigger expense as uh, prescription prices went up. So what is this donut hole in the coverage? Well, what it does is it limits the amount you have to pay out of pocket for prescription up to a certain point, and then there, there's a limit on how much Medicare will pay, and then there's this donut hole where you have to pay 100% for a while, and then finally Medicare kicks in again, and that period in between is called the donut hole. And you just imagine uh, starting to eat a donut, and you're chomping away delightedly on the delicious crumbs, and all of a sudden you bite down and there's nothing there, it's just a hole. And then when you fill in that hole with something else, then you can bite into the other side of the donut. So the donut is your coverage and the hole in the middle where you're not able to munch on anything. That's the part you have to start kicking in and paying 100 percent of your coverage until you get to the other side of having to pay all of that. And then your insurance kicks in again. And it's a lot. Right. But it's sort of a silly way to uh, describe it. It's really just a gap in the coverage, isn't it? I mean, you start receiving your insurance payments toward your prescription benefits. You hit a gap and you got to start covering it yourself. And then you get to the end of that and then the insurance kicks in again. That's one of the main reasons that we liked buying our own supplemental insurance that covers drugs instead of doing Part D because it doesn't have that donut hole. There's been lots of debate about how to close the donut hole or whether it should be closed and so on. It was a way of just saving the government money 
Um, but it really came as a shock, especially a lot of people and maybe especially older people don't pay that close attention to all the details of their coverage. And it uh, sometimes people got a very nasty shock and suddenly finding they couldn't afford medicines that were keeping them alive. All right. Now, here is our non-insurance related question of the episode. We'll wrap up with this. Uh, did donuts always have a hole? <laughs> no. Tell us about how the hole came to be. The first known usage of the word donut, D-O-U-G-H-N-U-T-S, um, occurs in Washington Irving's 1809 History of New York, and he describes them as balls of sweetened dough. So they're more like nuts, like, say, a walnut, than uh, modern donuts. And, of course, today, those kinds of little balls of fried dough, we referred to as donut holes, which is, you know, what would be left over, I guess, if you used a cutter to cut up a donut. So we're stuck with this word, which doesn't really etymologically make sense anymore, because the holes, the ones with the holes in them are what we call the donuts, and the ones that don't have any holes are called the holes. <laughs> the ones that look like donuts are called donut holes. <laughs> Right. And the ones that look like donuts are like pastry rings. Yes. Right. That would be the better description of them or pastry torus. Yes. If you want to go with the geometric or what we say, geometrical definition. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. OK. Well, uh, OK, let's just wrap up on that happier note than some of our discussion about insurance, uh, a more whimsical note anyway. And we'll talk more about insurance and healthcare terms next time. All right. Yeah, thank you, Paul. It's a long time. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website wmjasco.com with free shipping. Thanks for listening.